Once again, good morning, everyone. Uh, as you can tell by looking at me, I am not Pastor John. As, as Drew said, uh, John had other things to focus on this week. Apparently, there was a wedding yesterday. It was pretty important to him. Uh, his, his daughter got married. Come on, work with me. John's not here to tell bad jokes. You've got to laugh at mine. <laughs> uh, but w- right after Eric proposed and they set a date, John asked me to preach this particular Sunday. And uh, he knew we'd be in the middle of an ocean series, and he debated a little while letting me do one of those. And then he's like, eh, he wants to preach whatever's next. And so he just let me do whatever. And what the Lord laid on my heart, as you can tell by my two-year-old son who was screaming his head off, is patience. So we're going to talk about patience and waiting on God's timing this morning. Uh, John 11 is our passage this morning, but today we want to look at one of the most well-known people that Jesus ever met, a man by the name of Lazarus, and we want to look at what he and his story can teach us, particularly in today's modern world. And a little bit of a disclaimer, I've um, I've had two back-to-back weddings on back-to-back weekends, and this was a short work week for me, and basically I'm not very good at my job, so there will not be scripture on the screen this morning. Uh, We'll have to do it the old-fashioned way. You'll have to follow along in Bibles. There's a bunch of them in the pews. Uh, If you're real fancy, you can follow along on a cell phone, like I pretend my youth kids do every Sunday night. Come on. Kids are always on their phones. (laughs) Uh, John chapter 11, starting with verse 1. Uh, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love, that's Lazarus, is sick. Verse 4, when Jesus heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. So in other words, Jesus planned to use Lazarus's sickness as a platform to bring glory to God and to show people the power of God. Verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to the disciples, let us go back to Judea. Now verse 6 is absolutely critical in understanding this passage. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, but Jesus waited. Jesus made them wait for two days before he ever even attempted to respond to their situation. Does everybody see that? Or at least everybody hear that this morning? With me? Okay, cool. Jump down to verse 11. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, them as the disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Uh, But Jesus had been speaking of his death. His disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, so many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. The implication being that Jesus could ask God to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now let's stop and point out the huge mistake that Martha makes right here uh, at the beginning of the verse. She said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She made the mistake of believing that the Lord physically needed to be there in order to heal Lazarus. Had to be there physically in Bethany with her and her family to stop Lazarus from dying. 
Remember who Jesus is, though. Jesus is Almighty God. We see that in Luke 7, for example, uh, the, the centurion and his servant. Most of you know it. Um, the centurion uh, travels to Jesus because his servant is sick. And he says to Jesus, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. In other words, the centurion recognized that Jesus was a man with authority, the kind of authority that meant his physical presence wasn't needed to accomplish his will. All he had to do was speak the word, and it would be done. Uh, Jesus was amazed at the centurion's faith. Jesus simply spoke, and the centurion's servant was healed from miles and miles away. And the point is that if Jesus wanted to heal Lazarus before Lazarus had died, Jesus could have done it from a million miles away. He didn't have to be in Bethany with Lazarus and his family. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Powerful verse, amen? In fact, it's worth reading again. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And I don't want to just rush past that. Today is the start of Advent. This week's theme is hope, and when I think about the hope you and I have as followers of Jesus, I can't help but think about this verse. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. If we believe in Jesus, we will live even though we die. Uh, whoever lives by believing in Jesus will never die. That's hope. Amen? That's the message of the gospel. That's the reason we're here this morning. And it's not hope like we so often think of it, like I hope the Cowboys will win the Super Bowl. Yeah, not the Bengals. Uh, Bengals are the only team right now making me feel better about being a Cowboys fan. I won't get off on too much of a tangent, but I wrote this sermon before Thursday's game, and now I hope, I hope the Cowboys don't win the Super Bowl, just because I don't want our coach to have a job next year. Frustrating. Endlessly frustrating. And this is why I keep detailed notes, because if I don't, I'm going to go off topic like that. So we're going to get back to it. Uh, hoping the Cowboys win the Super Bowl is a hope-so hope. Um, what Jesus is saying here is that we can have full assurance and total confidence in him. It's a no-so hope. As followers of Christ, we're not just hoping that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Remember what Martha had said to Jesus. She said, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Martha wanted Jesus to ask God to raise Lazarus from the dead. But Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus doesn't have to ask God to do this because Jesus is God. Jesus has the power to do this all by himself. As he explained back in John 5.26, Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And John comments on that a few verses earlier, saying, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Almost like Mary and Martha should have seen this coming, right? Martha believed the resurrection was an event. Jesus wanted to convert Martha's thinking from believing in the doctrine of an event uh, to believing in the person of the resurrection. The resurrection wasn't some event in the future that Martha could cling to for hope, that one day she'd see her brother again uh, because God would raise everybody up someday in the future. The resurrection was the man standing in front of her. The resurrection is the Lord Jesus. Everybody still with me? 
thinking about this, Paul writes in Colossians 2.17, these festivals, he's talking about Jewish festivals, Yom Kippur, Passover, all that stuff, are a shadow, but the reality is found in Christ. And we need to understand this morning that Jesus is our living Passover, our living atonement. That's why we don't celebrate Jewish festivals anymore, because as followers of Christ, we don't have to celebrate what Paul calls shadows anymore, because we're joined at the hip with the risen, living light of the world. And if we are living, uh, if we know Jesus is our Savior, right here in John 11, we learn that the one who believes in Jesus will live eternally, even though they physically die, because by believing in Jesus, we will never die. Jesus asked Martha if she believes all this. Verse 27, yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And here she gets it right. Martha's getting that the resurrection isn't a doctrine, it's not an event, it's, it's Jesus. Verse 28, after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village. He, he was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforted her, uh, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Does that sound familiar? It should. It's the exact same thing her sister just said a few verses earlier. And the Bible doesn't tell us this outright, but it seems like Mary and Martha were complaining to each other about Jesus not being there when he made them wait a few days. Everybody see that? Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Jesus wept, by the way, is the shortest verse in the Bible. Um, as a youth pastor, I've had so many teenagers tell me their favorite verse is Jesus wept just because it's the only one they have memorized. Real easy to remember. Two words, Jesus wept. And then I'll ask them, oh, what, what passage is that in? I don't know. Jesus wept, though. Great. <laughs> but Jesus wept. Uh, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying. The thinking here makes sense, right? If Jesus could do all the other miracles that he's been doing so far, and everybody around him has seen him doing all of the miracles he's been doing, why wouldn't he have come to heal Lazarus, who he loved, before it was, quote-unquote, too late? Verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, uh, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, he called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face, and Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now I'm pretty disappointed in John, who's the disciple who wrote this book, because that's pretty much where this passage ends, and then he moves on to how the Pharisees uh, reacted to all of this. Um, I want to know what happened after Lazarus came out. I don't know about you. Does Jesus walk away, kind of like an action movie where Schwarzenegger's walking away from an explosion? Does it, is it like an epic thing? Uh, does he say, ta-da? Uh, that kind of thing. What's, what's the first thing Lazarus said when he came out of the grave? 
What's the first thing you would say if you were Lazarus? Somehow I don't think, hey, thanks, Jesus, really cuts it here. But John does add, verse 45, that because of what Jesus did, many Jews believed in him. I would hope so, right? Uh, So when Jesus said back in verse 4 that this sickness will not end in death, no, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus, unsurprisingly, was absolutely right. Jesus used Lazarus' death to bring glory to God through himself. Just for the sake of completion here, the Pharisees weren't happy. Uh, Jesus raising someone from the dead would be hard for anyone to ignore. So they plotted to arrest and kill Jesus, and John 12.10 tells us also, so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. And you say, Aaron, so what? That's a, that's a good story. Great miracle. Jesus is the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. What difference does any of this make to us when we walk out of here? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> About a week ago, before the wedding yesterday, I was at a different wedding back home in Virginia. Uh, a, a friend of mine was getting married. I was in the wedding, which means I had to wear a tux. I hate wearing tuxes. I hate getting dressed up. It's, it's bad. I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. And then you're taking pictures for 12 hours, and it's, it's awful. Hopefully, he's the last of my friends to get married, so praise the Lord. I won't have to do this again, ideally until Oliver gets married, several, several years from now. But uh, my brother-in-law was the best man. See, a lot of people think I married Emily because I love her. No, I I, I love her family. Uh, We're all friends, and uh, she was a nice bonus, of course, but... (laughs) See, she's, she's back in that room. I can picture her face but I can't actually see it, so that's fun for me. Um, But my brother-in-law was the best man, and he had it all planned out. He had the evening before all planned out. He was going to get a solid eight hours of sleep. He's got two kids at home, too, so he never really gets sleep, and we were going to make sure the groom was responsible and there at the church on time and all that good stuff. And for a while, everything he had planned was working well. Uh, We went to bed around 11, and we're laying there in the dark, and one of the groomsmen says, I'm hungry. Well, then the groom's like, I'm hungry. It's like, it's been a while since I've eaten. Now I'm hungry. Next thing I know, we're going out on the town, seeing whatever restaurants open at 11 p.m. All of a sudden, it's 3 a.m., and we're just, <laughs> we're just getting to bed. And uh, so my brother-in-law's plan has already uh, been cut in half. He's down from eight hours to four hours of sleep at best. The problem with his plan is he also didn't take into account that his brother-in-law, or me, had a cold at the time, uh, which means I'm snoring even louder than I normally do. We're talking shaking the house kind of snoring. And unfortunately for him, I was asleep before he was. So he only got about two hours of sleep, all told, on his plan of getting eight hours of sleep. And I tell you all this because John 11:6, Jesus made Mary and Martha wait two days before he came. They both said the same thing to him when they saw him. They said, Lord, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. They're saying two things. Lord, you were late, and Lord, you messed everything up. See, Mary and Martha also had everything perfectly planned out. Lazarus got sick, so they sent word to Jesus. Jesus would come heal him. Problem solved. But Jesus messed everything up because Jesus was late. And the reason they were so upset was because Jesus didn't do what they wanted him to do when they wanted him to do it. And this isn't just a problem that Mary and Martha had. This is a problem Aaron has too. Uh, See, in every situation in my life, I know exactly what I want God to do. I know exactly how I want God to do it. 
and I know exactly when I want God to do it, which is always, always, always right now. Not tomorrow, not sometime next week, but right now. Professional success, I don't want to wait for that. I want that now. Healing for sick people in my family, don't want to wait for that either. Let's make it happen now. Uh, Oliver to be potty trained. I would have liked that to happen yesterday. Diapers are expensive, y'all. Um, but regardless, uh, just like Mary and Martha, God often makes me wait and it drives me insane. Can anybody else relate to that this morning? If not, you should be up here preaching instead of me. Uh, so why did Jesus make them wait? And more importantly, why does he so often make us wait and what can we do about it? And the answer is found uh, partly in Isaiah 55, 8. Isaiah says of God, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Which means that his timing is not necessarily going to match our timing, because his timing is also higher than our timing. And the reason Jesus didn't show up uh, when Mary and Martha thought he should was because that Jesus' timing is better. Think about it. To come into a town and heal a man that's dying, it would certainly glorify God. It would certainly get some people to follow Jesus. But to go to a tomb where a guy had been dead for a few days, where the body is starting to decompose, it smells absolutely awful, to show up there and say, Lazarus, come out. If that dead guy comes walking out of the tomb, that's going to bring Jesus far more glory than if, if Jesus had come to heal him when he was alive. Right? Even today we understand this. Uh, if you're sick, there's a ton of over-the-counter medication available for pretty much anything you have uh, with medication and rest. You can heal yourself of a lot of things. If not, you can go to a doctor. Your doctor will help heal you. And this process isn't instantaneous, so we don't really think of it as a miracle. But we do see healings all the time. But in contrast, if tomorrow I go and visit my grandmother's grave, and I try to do what Jesus did here, and I call out in a loud voice, all right, Grandma, come on, people are going to think I've lost my mind. And rightfully so. I can't raise people from the dead. I'm not God. If Jesus can do things that I can't do, no matter how hard I try and no matter how much faith I have, I should probably trust in his plan, in his thoughts, in his ways, and his timing far more than I trust my own, right? Now, a number of years ago, McDonald's was getting complaints that the drive-thru took too long. Uh, they got all their experts together, nationally tried to figure out what, what was causing this problem, how to make it better. They tried to figure out what the average wait time was for uh, from the time an order was placed until the customer picked up the food and drove off. It was 96 seconds, just over a minute and a half. McDonald's said, that is unacceptable. And they set the nationwide goal of no more than a 60-second wait time. Now, I personally haven't seen that at McDonald's. It still feels like it takes forever. But you get the idea. They want it fast. Amazon is testing the, the use of drones for deliveries in major cities because waiting a day or two for what you ordered online is simply too long. Uh, they want to reduce that to an hour or two wherever possible. Verizon did a study recently on how long people are willing to wait for a video to load from the internet. Now they studied all videos, so this includes uh, things like news stories, anything from YouTube, stupid cat videos, uh, those recipe videos you see on Facebook that everybody shares and you say you're going to try that someday because it looks good, and then you click like on it, but you're never going to actually make it. That's, that's from experience. <laughs> but, but you clicked like, so now all you see on Facebook is recipe videos, and it makes you hungry all the time. Anyway, um, so they looked at all videos, and 
see how, to see how long people were willing to wait for a video to load uh, before they gave up on it and moved on with their day. Uh, what they found was that after five seconds, five seconds, a third of people had given up on whatever they were trying to watch. At, at 10 seconds, over half had given up, and at 15 seconds, 90% of people had given up on trying to watch whatever they had clicked on to watch. My point is that we live in an instant and fast-paced world, and we end up expecting God to work the same way. We've lost the spiritual discipline of waiting. Uh, if you're following along in the Bible, jump over to Psalm 27. Uh, where King David is going to put a practical handle on this discipline of waiting for God for us, uh, because when he's writing this, God is making him wait. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Now these first four verses here give us a little bit of background. King David is afraid of some very real enemies, some very real armies, some very real threats to the nation of Israel. But even in verse 1, he recognizes that if God is our stronghold, we don't have anything to fear because we serve a mighty God who is bigger than any obstacle or fear we could ever face. The next few verses illustrate for us how we should wait on God's timing. Verse 5. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. So the first thing we see here is that waiting is doing. David was fully engaged with God. David worshiped God before David ever got the answers that he was looking for. So often we only thank God when something goes right for us, when we see God visibly and tangibly come through for us, but that's not the example we see in David's life, especially not here. David's confidence in God was not based on David's ability to see God at work because he couldn't see God at work at the time. David's confidence in God was based on what David knew about who God was, not what God does for him. David's praise for God wasn't dependent on the actions of God on David's behalf, but on the character of who God is. And it makes me wonder, do we want more of God like David did, or do we just want more of what God can do for us? David is confident that God will protect him and keep him safe so that David can glorify God and continue to praise God. And the point is that if you're waiting to worship God until you can see him do something for you, that's not worship. That is a thank you card. Praise the Lord, even when he makes you wait. Verse 7, hear my voice when I call. Uh, some translations will say pray. Hear my voice when I call or pray. Lord, be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Verses 7 to 10 uh, shows us number 2, that waiting is praying. Verse 8, my heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Often God makes us wait so that we will learn to rely on him better and to develop a passion for knowing him. 
Too many of us only ever seek the hand of God. We want the God that gives us stuff. We want the God that does stuff for us uh, and works to give us all of the stuff that we've decided that we need. We seek his hand to help us, but we don't ever bother to seek his face in order to know him. But David, notice, doesn't pray for God to give him the stuff he'd like to have, and he doesn't pray that God would give him everything he wants out of life. Uh, David prays for mercy. David prays for God's acceptance, because David wanted to know God, not just get things from God. Now Martha, just like, uh, unlike David, at first was only interested in what Jesus could do for Lazarus and her family. Jesus had to explain to her that what she needed was not what Jesus could do for her. Martha needed to understand, more importantly, who Jesus is. The other thing we need to understand about waiting is found at the end of Psalm 27, uh, 9 and 10, where David says, Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Even though God was silent at this point in David's struggle, that didn't mean God had rejected David. Remember that. Silence from God does not mean rejection from God. Too many people give up on God when God makes them wait because they believe silence from God is a punishment from God, that their bad situation somehow means God has abandoned them, and that simply is not true. Verse 11, teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Here we see waiting is learning. Uh, There are lessons to be learned when God has things on pause for us. Waiting on the Lord can lead to growth. We have to ask ourselves what God is trying to teach us through waiting. Jesus, in our passage this morning, was trying to teach Mary and Martha and everyone else that Jesus is sovereign even over death, that death is not the end of our story when we believe in Jesus. Now, usually, the lessons God is trying to teach us are way more subtle than this. They don't involve formerly dead people coming out of a tomb, thankfully. Uh, But the lessons God teaches us through waiting are nevertheless important. Verse 13, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Lastly, we see waiting is trusting. David was convinced that heaven is not the only place of God's goodness. David was convinced that if he had the right attitude about waiting, that if he used this season of waiting to seek the face of God, then God would not only reward David in the next life in heaven, uh, but he would reward him here on earth and reward his kingdom. All David had to do was be faithful in waiting on the Lord, and God would protect him. Now, I'm sure just like Mary and Martha, David had a plan for what he thought God should do, how God ought to do it, and when God should do it, which is always right now. But David realized that he wasn't God, that God had a better plan than David did, that God's thoughts were better and higher than David's thoughts, and that God's timing is better than David's timing. See, David had honed this discipline of waiting on the Lord and had learned to trust God completely, even when David couldn't see how it was all going to play out. And he concludes with this verse, and I love this verse. Verse 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, and take heart, and wait for the Lord. May we all learn to have that kind of faith in God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for the privilege we have to be in your house this morning. We thank you and praise you for being the almighty creator and sustainer of the universe. And God, you know we are an impatient people. Uh, Teach us to have faith in you and to trust in your timing, knowing that your plan for us is far better for us than our own plans could ever be. Help us to understand that everything you do even in waiting, is for our ultimate good and your glory. 
Lord, I thank you for the example of Lazarus that shows you are almighty, that you can be glorified even when we don't see where it's possible, that you care deeply for ordinary people like us. And Lord, help those of us who are waiting on answers from you to trust in your timing and your wisdom and not in our own. Help us to glorify you in all that we say, do, and think, even in seasons of waiting. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.